0: Remain standing for the reading of God's Word. From the Book of Luke, chapter twenty-four, verses one through six. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And his church says, He's risen indeed. Let's pray. That was all right. We're going to work on that. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you are the high King of heaven and the author of salvation, the designer of life and the sustainer of all creation. Father, today we remember the crowning victory of Christ's resurrection. Only you can warm people's hearts to believe. So God, we ask, make today the day of salvation for many. Draw people to your son and soften their hearts to his message. For we know and believe that Jesus saves. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. You may be seated. Welcome. This resurrection
1: sunny, so great to see your faces, all of you here. Uh, Yes, it's good to be back from vacation, have a little bit of, sunburn is going away, haven't, yeah, that's good, but uh, hope you guys are all doing well. I just, before we get, jump into the message today, I just want to take a minute or two and just thank our worship team, Uh, Daniel Hickenbotham, our worship pastor, and his team, uh, Kristen, Jessica, and our sound team, and our construction team, they have been put in countless hours this last month Uh, to just kind of get this room ready for us today. Could you just uh, thank them with me? Great job, guys. Great job. Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 9. We will mainly be in this passage. We're actually continuing our sermon series called The Relentless Gospel. And today we're actually going to be looking at Saul of Tarsus' conversion story. But before I tell you his story, I want to tell you someone else's story. Uh, I was watching it on YouTube uh, last week, and I just, I was so moved by it, I felt like I had to share it today, and it's a story about Lee Strobel. How many of you are aware of Lee Strobel's ministry, his writings? Yeah, he is a New York Times best-selling Christian author, and he writes a series of books called The Case for," The Case for Faith, The Case for the Resurrection, The Case for Christ. They are phenomenal books. What I love about the books and I encourage you to pick them up, especially if, if you're still working through some of these issues, is that it's not just a purely apologetic account of the case for faith or the resurrection. He takes you on a journey, an investigative journey. Uh, but I want to tell you what he was before he became a Christian. Not, not many know that he was, or you may not know, that he was actually a hardened atheist, very opposed to the gospel of Jesus and the church. He decided at a very young age he says that God does not exist in fact God cannot exist and he was satisfied with that he grew up and went to college and got his education and eventually landed the prestigious job as the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune or as he likes to call it the Chicago Tribune
0: <laughs> Don't you
1: I love that Chicago accent I love to listen to him in that accent tell the story but it won't be as good because I'm telling it today So he was so skeptical of, he became so skeptical of people's claims that he actually turned into a cynic. And his department, they were so skeptical of people's claims that they had a little sign in their newsroom that read, if your mama says she loves you, check your sources. (laughs) In a hard fact-based and evidence-based career, his skepticism hardened into cynicism. He had seen everything. He had seen the worst of humanity. He had seen people do things to to each other that were unspeakable. And not only did he become a cynic, but he became a hedonist, a self-proclaimed hedonist. And as you know, that is just a person who lives for themselves. That is just a person who lives for their own pleasure, and every decision they make is for themselves. He became a narcissist, self-absorbed, profane, a lost soul by every possible measurement as he was collecting armfuls of accolades for being the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. But while he was doing that, he, he was a weekend drunk. He was full of rage and full of anger and sin. And he hated the very idea of belief in God. Well, while this was all going on, his wife, Leslie, made a friend who happened to be a Christian. And Leslie's Christian friend invited her to church. She thought, eh, my life is pretty empty, I might as, might as well try that. So she went to church with her friend, and every week she heard the gospel of Jesus, and eventually she became a believer. And she came home one Sunday afternoon and told Lee, Lee, I, I found Jesus. Like, I am a follower of Christ, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus, and he thought, oh, no. For an atheist, this was the worst possible news. The first word, he says, that went through his mind was divorce. I can't be married to some kooky Christian person. But he noticed immediate changes in Leslie's life. He began to see that she treated him and the kids differently. She had a different outlook on life. She was a person who was filled with God's hope, and he could not deny that. And so strangely, he began to be pulled toward the Christian faith. But then he decided, I want my old life back. I want our life back. So he set out to disprove the Christian faith. And he thought, if I could just disprove the Christian faith, take me a weekend, You know, long weekend, but it'll take me a weekend. But if I could just disprove the Christian faith and show my wife it's a sham, then she'll leave this weird stuff and come back to me, and we can just be, like, miserable and drunk together, right? (laughs) Two years later, after doing a detailed investigation of the historical claims surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Lee Strobel came to the inescapable conclusion. Jesus died on the cross, and Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He could not deny it. And he said, the problem was I believed it, but I hadn't received it. And he said, so what I did is I got down on my knees in my living room, and I just prayed. I just prayed what, what I knew to pray. And he just asked God, God, forgive me of my sins. And he pledged his life to the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And from that moment on, he was a child of God. because John 1.12 says, for all those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And, it, and their entire lives changed after that. He came to the conclusion that the facts surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection were inescapable. Jesus had been fatally tormented to death on a cross. All scholars agree with that. Scholars unanimously agree, whether they're secular or they're believing scholars, that Jesus Christ's tomb on the third day was empty. And they all trace the tradition of believing in Jesus' resurrection back to the earliest eyewitnesses of Christ. And you have to account for the meteoric rise of the Christian faith. The Christian faith had no objective, no earthly reason to grow in the Roman world. Why did it take off like a rocket ship? Because these people had experienced Jesus risen from the dead. Now, one of, Lee's, one of the keys to his story, his conversion, was actually Saul of Tarsus. Because there are two events in the Christian life that cry out for explanation. One is the resurrection of Jesus, and the other is the conversion of Saul. Because as we're going to see, Saul has no reason whatsoever to convert to the Christian faith. So we're going to look at Paul's experience of the resurrected Jesus. Now Luke takes pains to describe what kind of person Saul was, uh, Saul of Tarsus was. The conversion of a man like this requires an adequate, sufficient explanation for it. Saul's character before Jesus, so he tells us what his character was. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, says says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. Now, remember, that's Stephen. We mentioned him a few weeks ago. Stephen was stoned to death by the Jewish Sanhedrin, and Saul, remember, was there giving his approval. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house, go from house to house, and drag off men and women and put them into prison. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now Saul was still breathing out threats and murder. Against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, what do we know about Saul's character? Well, Saul was devout. Saul later will describe himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, if I said to you, I am an American of Americans, what am I communicating? Patriotism. Patriotism. And Paul says, I was a Hebrew, of all the Hebrews, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul had an Abrahamic heritage. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin. So not only was he, uh, not only did he come from Abraham, but he was a Torah-observant Jew. Paul lived according to the fastidious legal requirements of Phariseeism. And Phariseeism wasn't just like pious Judaism. Phariseeism, what the Pharisees did, what distinguished them is that they took all the rituals and purity rites of the temple festivals and they translated those ritual purity rites to everyday life. The, uh, the normal Jew did not have to uh, abide by those purity rituals. But they, so they upped the ante on purity. And so Paul says, that was me. He was devout. Saul was also calloused. Can you imagine how calloused you would have to be Standing there watching, not only watching someone die in front of you, Stephen dying in front of you. And as he's being stoned, you are giving your consent to it. You are giving your approval. You are saying, yes, that's the will of God. That's the work of God to kill Christians. So his heart was cold, cold as stone. And he violently persecuted the church. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. That means he was tearing the church apart. From house, house after house, he would drag Christians out before the Sanhedrin. They would be tried. And some scholars believe that by the time he starts writing his letters in the New Testament, some of those people that he dragged before the Sanhedrin and were tried and imprisoned were still in prison. Can you imagine the emotional weight of knowing that you persecuted the church and some of those people might still be in jail? And Saul threatened and terrorized the church. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. What was Saul saying? Saul was saying, you remember Stephen? Remember how it went for Stephen? That's how it's going to go for you. If you follow Jesus and you don't turn away from this faith, that's how it's going for you. You're going to end up in a pile, under a pile of rocks as well. And he was zealous for his cause, thinking that the work that he was doing was for God when all the while it wasn't for God. And Saul was successful. Saul tells us that he was very successful. Uh, Persecuting the church was his ticket to notoriety among the Jews, among the Sanhedrin. Persecuting the church was his way to the top. And he had gained so much notoriety that they had actually given him letters of recommendation. Now, historians tell us that getting letters of recommendation from Caiaphas would have been a difficult thing to do unless the Sanhedrin was really in favor of your ministry. (laughs) And so he gets these letters of recommendation. He has notoriety. He's infamous among Christians, but he's celebrated among the Jews. Yes, you are doing a work for Yahweh. You are doing a work for God. And he was successful. Here's what he says in Galatians 1, 13 through 14. He says, For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. That was his stated purpose. His, purpose, his mission statement was to destroy Christianity. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, his rabbinic competitors, And here's the reason. Because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors, his zeal caused him to persecute the church, and he was was a rising star. His ticket to prominence among his peers was his zeal in persecuting the Christian faith. So he was angry, he was deceived, he was blaspheming God, he was a religious zealot, and he was as lost as a religious man could be. Let's talk about his conversion. That's his character. Let's talk about his conversion. Chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. So here's how Luke tells the story. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus. Now Damascus is about 140 miles from Jerusalem. So he's almost there. And a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. So this wasn't just a vision. It did involve a vision, as he'll say later. But this involved, involved an actual appearance of Christ. Like Christ steps out of uh, heaven And the flash of glory appears all around him and knocks him down. And this is what he says. He says, a light from heaven, Luke says, suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, in some ways, Paul's conversion is unlike any conversion you will ever hear. Really, it's unlike any conversion in the history of the church. Uh, Because this is not how people come to faith in Jesus. Jesus doesn't just sort of step out of heaven and knock you out of your car or out of your bed and reveal himself to you. That's really not how it works. Paul's experience is actually proprietary. It's unique to him. But in some ways, his conversion experience, in principle, is all of ours. I want to show it to you. First of all, Jesus... Elected Saul from birth before he was born. Galatians 1 15, he says, But when God, who from my father's womb, from my mother's womb, set me apart and called me by his grace. God set me apart when? Before I was even born. God elected me and set me apart for salvation and to this mission. And then he tells us that Jesus revealed himself to him. Galatians 1.16, he says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, Paul was not a seeker. Paul wasn't seeking the Lord. He wasn't coming to church on a Sunday morning and, and going, you know, I really want to investigate the claims of Christ. He wasn't doing that. He was persecuting the church. He wasn't seeking Jesus. Jesus was the seeker. Jesus was looking for him. And Paul is also confronted with his sin. The first thing Jesus says to him is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he doesn't even know who it is. He knows it's the Lord, it must be, but he doesn't know what his name is. And so that is a confrontation of his sin. Now later, in 1 Timothy 1.13, he will say, I was a blasphemer. Like, I thought I was doing the work of God, and while I was persecuting the church, I was actually blaspheming God. I was a blasphemer against the Lord And so Jesus confronts him. And then Jesus instructed Saul to repent. He tells him, get up, go into the city, and I'll tell you what you need to do. And every time you hear the question asked, what must we do? What must I do? The answer is always, repent and believe. Now, Paul describes this event later in much more detail in Acts 26. When he's standing before Agrippa, he's in a trial. The Sanhedrin has brought him there. They want to kill him, and he's given his testimony again to Agrippa. He says this in Acts 26. He says, And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. So there's a hint that his ministry is going to be difficult. Like if God's calling for you to repent is for him to say, I'm going to have to rescue you from pretty much everybody you preach to, then uh, that's going to be a difficult calling. And he said, I'm sending you to them, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and to share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I wasn't about to disobey that. Like, Jesus stepped out of eternity and called me to repent. And it's a 180, it's 180 degrees, right? Like, he was, going, he was the chief Uh, opponent of the church, and now he becomes the chief spokesman and advocate for the church. That's repentance. And so in his mission is a call to repentance, and then he's confirmed, his calling is confirmed through a man named Ananias. Now back in chapter nine, there's a man named Ananias, and he's important, why? Because Ananias, as far as we can tell, is not an apostle. Ananias is not a deacon, doesn't look like a pastor or elder. I mean, as far as we know, he's not. He's not. And God calls Ananias. And he sees also a vision of the Lord. And here's how it goes. Jesus says to Ananias, there's a man, I I want you to go to him. He's been praying and fasting for three days. So Paul is really upset. Paul is traumatized by this. It takes him three days of fasting and prayer just, just to think about it and get his head around it. And he says he's been fasting and praying for three days you're going to lay hands on him, and he will receive his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. And what is his response? That's the easiest evangelistic call I've ever got. Like, that's a good day. I mean, that's an easy one. I can reel that one in if you're going to do all that. And he says, great. What's his name? His name is Saul of Tarsus. And he's like, hold on. Wait, wait, what? What? The guy who was given letters of recommendation from Caiaphas to come here and arrest people like me? You want me to go to him? And Jesus says, yes, go. Go to him because he's my chosen vessel and I must show him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. So God confirms his calling, his conversion through another believer, a guy named Ananias. And then Jesus baptizes Paul or Saul in the Holy Spirit. Ananias shows up. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He wasn't blind anymore. And then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So at the same time, this physical miracle is happening of the scales falling from his eyes that he's getting his sight back. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then he's baptized in water. And all this to say... Saul of Tarsus has absolutely no reason, none, to convert to the faith that he is persecuting. That is his ticket to notoriety. And what explains Saul's conversion? What could possibly explain it other than the fact that he met the resurrected Jesus? He met the risen Savior. And let's talk about Paul's gospel. Well, right away, as soon as Paul meets the risen Savior, he begins to preach this. This is the message he begins to preach. The crucified, risen Lord. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 becomes a very important passage. And it was important in Lee Strobel's conversion as well. Because it wasn't just the story of Saul of Tarsus being converted to Jesus when there was no reason for him to be so or to do so. But it was also this passage because when he studied the history of it, it turns out that all scholars across the board, secular divinity scholars and Christian scholars agree that the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 goes all the way back to within a month of the event of Jesus' death. This is remarkable. So it can't have been made up later by a later generation of Christians and imported back into the story. And this is what he says, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12 and then to the 500. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Now Jesus does still give people dreams. Muslims get these all the time. People who live in the East, they will have a dream about Jesus, and in the dream, Jesus will say something like this. You're going to meet a person who's going to hand you an Arabic New Testament, and when you do, I want you to read it, and now you're mine. And they do, and they get saved. I mean, this is a common testimony among Muslims in the Middle East. So Jesus does still give people dreams. He does still speak to people that way, but he doesn't speak to people this way. What Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15 is, I'm the last one. I'm the last one who had Jesus step out of heaven and bodily appear to them and call them to salvation and mission. He's the last. And Paul wishes that he had been in with the first group. He goes, it's like I've been untimely born. Oh, how I wish I had been around when Jesus in his earthly ministry and saw him do all of this and been a disciple then. But no, he's last. the last. And what, is, what are the contents of his gospel? Very simple. No preacher can mess this up, <laughs> right? This is just too easy. Christ was crucified. He died for our sins according to the scriptures as a perfect Torah-obedient man, as the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world, as a sacrifice for sins for you and for me and the world. And Isaiah 53 says it, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed, restored, reconciled to God through the punishment that was upon Christ. And Christ was buried, according to the scriptures, in a borrowed tomb. Why is that important? Why is that important part of the the formula here? It's important because when you go in a Jewish tomb and they roll that heavy rock over the cave... What happens is they seal it with a waxy cord and it just kind of, it's airless now. And if you're there for three days, you're surely dead. You're good and dead. So the whole idea is you can't say that Jesus, when they rolled away the stone, that he just kind of came stumbling out going, I'm the resurrected Jesus, you know, like. (laughs) No. The crucifixion kills him. Roman torture kills him. He goes in the grave. He's sealed in that tomb for three days. And this is according to the Scriptures. Isaiah 53, 8 and 9 says, For he was cut off from the land of the living, killed, and he was assigned a grave, a tomb with the wicked. And then Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Raised bodily, raised immortal, raised in glory. And guess what? If you're a believer... And you put your faith in Jesus, that's your future too. No matter how old you get, no matter how much disease is in your body, someday at the end of this age, Christ promises, read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, Christ promises that you are going to be resurrected as well. You are going to be raised back to life. You wait till you see your new self. You're going to be like, ooh, yeah, it's good. <laughs> okay. Amen, that's in the Bible. <laughs> okay. Raised immortal, never to die again. Raised as the firstborn from among the dead, the firstfruits and the first of many brethren and sistren. <laughs> to never, ever die again. As, as, as Daniel said earlier, he's defeated death once and for all. Isaiah 53, 11. So after he has fatally suffered, been tormented to death, and put in a grave, then he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will be raised and be satisfied with the inheritance of God, God's inheritance in his people. And there is salvation, listen, in no other thing you could trust in. There is salvation in no other name. There's no other way. Nothing else you could seek could deliver you the salvation that you want, that you desire. Christ and Christ alone. I just want to conclude with my own story After my dad's death when I was 14 years old, my life just spiraled downward. I quit high school. I started getting into lots of trouble. I was already getting into trouble, but a lot more trouble. I turned my back on the faith of my youth, my childhood faith, and I was lost and lonely and hurting without Christ and without hope in the world. But when God, who is rich in mercy, called me, When God, who is rich in mercy, who chose me as his own, when God, who is rich in grace, revealed the truth of the gospel to me, my life was never the same. I was confronted of my sin. I was confronted with the fact that he is holy and I am not. And I gave him everything as my Savior and my Lord. And I have never, ever been sorry that I did that when I hear stories like Lee Strobel's you see I don't have his story but I know the same resurrected Jesus when I read stories like Saul of Tarsus I certainly don't have his conversion experience but let me tell you I know the same risen Savior and you can know him today too will you pray with me Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, this is the message that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Are you willing today to believe in your heart that God sent Jesus to die for your sins, to be raised on the third day to defeat death, hell, and the grave for you? And if you believe it, will you receive it? Because it's a simple matter of confessing that it's true and confessing that it's yours and receiving the gift. Will you do it this morning? And God, we we choose. We choose to stop running and start believing from our heart. We believe it from the heart and we receive it from you as a free gift of salvation and God, to all of those who believe on your name, to those who received Jesus Christ, you gave the right to become children of God. And from this day forward, we are your children. We belong to you. And if you're a believer here this morning, let me tell you something. There is no one in your life that you know no spouse, no parent, no grandparent, no grandchild, no child. There is no one in your life that you know that is beyond the reach of grace. If Jesus Christ could elect and save and bring a guy like Saul of Tarsus, if he could reach out to Lee Strobel and change a hardened atheist who was dead set against the gospel, if he could reach Pastor Jeff, a scared, hurting kid, there's nobody in your life he can't reach. Will you pray for him? God, we just lift them up to you right now. We lift up our family. We lift up our friends. We pray for their salvation. And God, we just, as a church, we just commit. We're not going to stop praying. We're not going to give up on them. We're going to pray them into the kingdom. Lord God, we pray for their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.